You're listening to Driving Place-Based Innovation, a podcast series by Newcastle Gateshead Initiative produced in partnership with the Digital Tourism Think Tank. I'm Nick Hall, and I'll be your host for this series where we're going to be looking at how digital and technology innovation is driving transformation of Northeast England's visitor economy. Throughout the series, we'll be sitting down with organizations near and far Balancing a local perspective where we hope to shine a light on innovation in and around Newcastle with global perspectives, bringing together learnings from further afield. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to be sure that you don't miss out on future episodes. For more information about the series or to get in touch, just head over to ngi.org.uk slash podcast, where you'll be able to find out more information and how to get involved. In the second episode of Driving Place-Based Innovation, we're asking, where can data take us? Today, we sit down with Keith Merrin, Director of Tyne and Weir Archives and Museums and Co-Chair of Newcastle Gateshead Cultural Venues. He joins me to discuss the insights gathered through research carried out with Newcastle Gateshead Initiative to understand the impact of COVID on visitor behaviour. It turns out what's key is the nuances that exist in the data. This has helped shape and inform strategic decisions, which have led to data-based innovation, a key component in overcoming barriers and adapting to shifting needs and preferences. Later in the episode, we head over to Milan, where we check in with Marco Minicucci from Milano and Partners to understand how data drives every decision in the organization, from marketing and creative decisions through to destination development needs and opportunities. Here, Marco talks about the importance of the startup ecosystem, especially right now, with much hype around the future of data, considering the impact and opportunities presented by developments in AI. So my name's Keith Merrin. I'm the director of uh, Tangmere Archives and Museums. And we run nine museums across Tyneside, uh, which uh, cover all sorts of uh, interesting things to do with the region's history. So we run a, a, a steam railway, uh, two Roman forts, uh, a museum that has uh, Egyptian artifacts in it, Roman artifacts, history, natural history, uh, industrial history museums, two art galleries, three art galleries, in fact. So it's a real range, a range of things. And together they attract around a million visitors each year. It's a huge responsibility and a a very eclectic uh, range of uh, cultural and historical um, places that you look after. Uh, Give us a little bit of an idea of how you then think about audiences and the public that you're trying to engage with. So our audiences really come from a variety of of different places, if you like. So, So a lot of our audiences, it would be local and regional families who would come and visit for a day out. But we also, uh, we know we have visitors from all over the world uh, who are visiting the Northeast. And uh, particularly because we manage two sites on the Hadrian's Wall World Heritage Site, which is a, a big magnet attraction really for international visitors and domestic visitors. So uh, we know a huge amount about our visitors uh, who come or uh, who visit our, our venues because we do a lot of uh, surveys of, of who they are. We know, as I say, that we get a lot of family visitors who will often be looking for uh, more than just simply looking around the museum. They'll be looking for activities, things to, to interact with, perhaps special events. Um, and we essentially uh, operate all year round in most of our sites. 
which means that we're constantly thinking about how we continue to get business to come at all times of year, rather than perhaps just during the summer holidays. So working with so many visitors, more than a million, uh, presents a lot of insights, a lot of data that you can drill down and uh, start to explore. And of course, uh, this episode is all about where that data can take us. Um, we're huge advocates also of uh, creative methods such as design thinking, but nothing is really possible if we only work on assumptions. It's also important to validate uh, our ideas, um, our thoughts, and also inform our opinions better. Um, so whilst I guess uh, everybody gets very excited about big data, small data and the data that we own and we can work with on a day-to-day -day basis is also just as valuable. Uh, tell us a little bit about the research that you commissioned after COVID to start to try to understand better the barriers uh, that were starting to emerge uh, amongst your visitors and perhaps preventing them to return to cultural venues across New Newcastle Gateshead. So COVID for us was uh, obviously had a massive impact as it did for, for most people. Um, museums and galleries and other cultural venues actually were closed for, for longer than uh, many other uh, facilities, public facilities, including shops and, and bars and that sort of thing. And during that period, obviously, we lost a lot of visitors. Even as we reopened, uh, visitors were very slow to return in, in venue. And we obviously had some ideas about what might be causing that, but we thought clearly what we needed was much greater insight into those visitors who had visited in the past and weren't coming back. So we worked with the Newcastle Gates Initiative to commission research, which uh, was quite comprehensive and really was aimed, targeted at people who had previously visited our venues, but hadn't come back after the pandemic, after the, the second lockdown, if you like. Uh, and we also were able to widen that research to work with some of our other cultural partners in the city. So also thinking about not just why people weren't coming back to museums, but why they weren't coming back to uh, performances in the theatres, in the concert halls, at the cinema, uh, which some of which were slightly different and some of which actually were the same. And what was amazing about the research, as I say, it was quite comprehensive. We, it involved not just online surveys, but face-to-face -face surveys, focus groups, uh, but also uh, what we call social listening, so which, which essentially looked at all of our social feeds and gave a sense of what was going on pre-pandemic during the pandemic and after the pandemic in terms of both how often we were mentioned on social media, but also whether that was positive or negative. Um, I might come back to that in, in a bit. But what we found through the research was in many ways, not surprising, but actually really helpful in terms of the six interlinked reasons why people weren't coming back to our venues. COVID itself only really being one of those. And just to, to put this into context, we commissioned this research just in, in late summer last year. So probably, you know, uh, even then COVID was, was probably much more front of mind for a lot of people than perhaps it even is now, you know, a few months later. Uh, but it wasn't as simple as people saying, we don't want to come back to venues because of COVID. It was much more about people thinking about, you know, the impact of COVID now at this moment in time. So for example, uh, uh, I might be seeing an elderly relative in a week's time, so I don't want to catch COVID now in case I've got an elderly relative at risk. 
Not, I'm never going to go back to a venue, but I don't necessarily want to work now. And what that meant that people's attitude to risk changed. So, uh, and, and their attitude to what was worth the risk, if you see what I mean. So, so people were thinking, well, if I could go and see a major artist playing at the Sage Gates out, Nick Cave, for example, that might be worth the risk of catching COVID. Whereas to go and visit my local museum, just for what's normally happening, it's probably not worth the risk of catching COVID if I'm going to see an elderly relative next week. So people are making quite nuanced decisions about why they would visit and why they wouldn't visit. The second thing really was, was linked to that was about consumer confidence and about tying up money and tickets for things. Uh, and what we found was, uh, was that people were not so keen to have money tied up in uh, things that were going to happen some time off. And a lot of people had had bad experiences, I think, during the various lockdowns where they'd been unable to, or they'd been unwell themselves and unable to, to attend an event that they paid, paid a lot of money for. So we've had a real change in consumer behavior in terms of buying tickets, booking, and things in advance. Third factor was about changing habits. And uh, this was quite, I suppose, again, obvious but interesting, that after two years of lockdowns and uh, often being at home, uh, people have found different things to do with their spare time. So where at one time, so Saturday morning might have involved getting up and taking the kids to a local museum. Now, uh, during lockdown, they've got a dog uh, or a camper van, and suddenly Saturday morning involves something slightly different, taking the dog out to the, to the beach or, or whatever. Or, uh, you know, kind of obvious things again, but Netflix subscriptions or other streaming site subscriptions had taken the place of those activities that at one time might have been cultural activities within the local area were now taking place online. Um, cost of living crisis, we found was a big factor for people and people starting to think about decisions that they were making in terms of the cost, particularly transport costs, uh, the costs of travel and transport for visiting venues or for taking part in cultural activity. And also awareness, the fact that people who at one time were very aware of what was happening at our cultural venues, partly because of this social media, they'd seen other people visiting things, you know, on Facebook, so another family going and doing something, you know, we should do that. Suddenly that wasn't happening. So people's awareness of what was going on was much lower. And then finally, the, the, there was a set of factors that we call external factors, things that perhaps aren't in our control outside of our venues. So for example, road layouts might have changed, uh, parking prices, and they have changed, gone higher. Also, restaurants, cafes, bars that perhaps used to operate on a seven-day cycle were now reducing their opening times. And I think that continues now as, as patterns of people working in the city change, that some bars, restaurants are only open certain days. And what that meant was that people who were trying to plan a cultural activity couldn't necessarily re rely on some of the things they'd always ride on. I always used to park here. I always used to visit this place for lunch and then pop to the museum or, or a show or whatever. So none of these things on their own are particularly uh, shocking. I think they're kind of common sense to a certain extent, but understanding the interrelationship between them was quite key to us. And particularly thinking about the fact that uh, people would only come out and engage in cultural activity if it was worth, worth the risk, if you like, but it had to be low or no cost. It had to be something they heard of. They didn't want to tie up money with it. And it had to be, you know, 
fit in with a new lifestyle that they might have created over the last couple of years. Started to make us think that actually this, that the information we were getting through all this data, the response to it was also going to have to be quite nuanced, complicated, and involving lots of different partners. So that's quite a, a lot of insights to unravel. And as you said, uh, with a lot of that, it's it's on the fringes, it's nuances, it's um, quite subtle lifestyle changes or behavioral patterns or things that have been introduced. Uh, even, as you say, these very, very small barriers, which are in ultimately resulting in quite big behavioral changes, such as um, whether certain businesses are open or doing their activities in the same way that they used to. And I guess all of this creates uh, a web of challenges to overcome or to adapt to these new realities and try to somehow find a way for the museums to be a relevant part of their lives now, their lives today. So with all of this data and insights, it at least gives you a starting place to start thinking about solutions. I understand you involved different partners and you started to form uh, good collaborations to innovate and to find solutions and ways to address some of these issues. Tell us a little bit about some of what came out of that. Yeah, so, so it, it became very clear from the research that the solutions that we needed to find were ones that weren't just within our power to implement. and and. If it kind of led us to working quite closely with some of our partners, the City Council and Newcastle Gates Initiative, the uh, Business Improvement District, but also transport providers and other cultural partners. So one of the first things we did was actually just an awareness campaign, given that awareness was low, and, and the social listening that we did actually pointed towards this, that people just weren't talking about our venues very much. Uh, and so we were able to bring all the cultural partners in the city together to run a campaign across the city called Make Your Moment, which was about reminding people that being in cultural venues is about the moment. It's about the, the experience, the uh, memory that you get from that. Uh, but also we formed a very close partnership with Nexus who provide the Metro transport system within the city. And they were already thinking about, obviously they wanted to get people back onto the transport system. We were very aware that the, one of the things that come out, or anyway, a couple of things that come out from the research, one was around cost. I knew there was around people being unsure about road layouts and transport systems and things like that. So we worked very closely with Nexus to create a, a, a campaign called Ways to Play, which was about providing low cost days out for families. And uh, Nexus were able to provide free metro travel for children. We were able to provide free uh, activities children so that families could have a relatively risk-free low-cost day out uh, and it was really easy and straightforward for them to participate in. Uh, that was a really successful campaign and it's won actually won a number of awards already and we're looking to repeat that again next year so a uh, really brilliant partnership there. The other thing that we're, we're working on now across all of our venues is a program called Waste, is a program called Warm Welcome which is based around the fact that avenues are there and open and easy to access. Most of them are free. Uh, and also uh, many of them have activities that people can just drop into and, and take part in. And that's really, again, a big awareness campaign, looking at how we take the things that people were concerned about and turn them into a virtue, if you like, you know, the, uh, whether that's about cost or whether it's about ease of access or whether it's about uh, 
how it fits in with, with you know your life and, and makes it easy to pop in and out and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's been it's been a really interesting learning experience. But at the heart of it was it's a real sort of understanding of the data and a real as as you say, an understanding of the nuances that sit within that data and how we then use them, replay them in our messaging back to back to visitors. And you, you've spoken about the importance of uh, both the data you can uh, read through your own data, but also uh, social listening as a really key tool to see what people are saying online on social. Um, we often think about social listening as something which is entirely about sentiment. Are we seeing positive reactions or negative reactions? But I think there you point to something a little bit different, which is almost absence. Um, did you reveal um, any specific insights from social listening that perhaps people weren't telling you in a sort of traditional insight environment such as through surveys so i think one of the things that social listening helped us understand was actually how the our initial reaction to covid had had a negative impact on those people who had visited so pre-covid uh what social listening was telling us was that very high awareness of what we were doing. We were being talked about a lot on social media and the sentiment was very positive. Then during COVID, it fell off a cliff pretty much. You know, we may have thought that we were doing a lot of work online. We were doing a lot of work online, but but there was very little talk about what we were doing. So very, very low numbers of uh, uh, social posts going on. Then after the first lockdown, when we reopened with many restrictions in place, one-way systems, interactives, out of use, because we didn't want people touching them and potentially passing on infections, social mentions started to go up, but sentiment was very low. So people were coming back and not liking the fact that their kids couldn't run around or they were being forced to go on one-way route around the museum. And I think that was something that probably we hadn't you know, I think we thought people would be pleased to be back, but actually people were coming back and weren't that happy. And, and the social listening really helped us to understand that in a way that people weren't telling us, if you like, really, in the surveys and in our visit feedback. So it seems that um, through COVID, uh, there's been this need to react to things as it as they happen, as they change from necessary restrictions to protect public safety to making difficult decisions on how to open up and what to open up and how restricted or unrestricted different things can be. And all of these decisions perhaps have a, are a double-edged sword. They perhaps benefit some and they frustrate others. And I guess you've been able to really understand the impact of all of that and think about how to address that. With all of the great solutions that you developed um, in working through this data, is there one that you would say really sticks out to you that perhaps you've managed to incorporate more deeply into the long-term view on things? I think absolutely understanding the interrelationship between what we do and the rest of the city. And I know that, again, that may be something that's obvious, but I'm not sure we really understood how uh, important a factor like be, knowing where to park or um, knowing where to get a cup of coffee outside of the museums was on people's willingness to visit and uh, and propensity to visit and, and how well they had a good day so i think i think probably that's been one of the biggest insights that understanding of how we fit in that wider ecosystem of their city and therefore any solutions that we need to find or any, any initiatives that we need to develop need to look beyond 
just our venues. And again, you know, we've always been part of collaborations and conversations across the city. But I think really understanding that if we want people to visit our museum, we need to be really clear to them how to, you know, what changes might be going on in the road systems around here or what, what the best metro station is. Again, some of the stuff we've always done. But I think we, what we really understood is how, how important those things are now to people, making it as easy as possible for people to visit. Because when you're working with mainly free venues, as we are, you kind of think, oh, well, there are no barriers. But of course, there are many barriers that, that, that people have, not just intellectual barriers or, or barriers, you know, cultural barriers, but actually just physical getting in and out of venues, finding, navigating way around the city, understanding how you can fit that into a day that it's not going to take your entire day off and that sort of thing. Yeah, so some really great insights there. And I think the key message is um, to to be open to what we can learn from data, to synthesize different sets of data, different insights, and to perhaps also consider the subtleties within that data, the nuances, the things which perhaps can be quite easily overlooked. But if we put them all out, they tell us a picture that perhaps isn't so clear or so obvious. And then I think lastly, this message that you shared of collaboration, the need for us to work together as an industry, um, whether that's between mobility and arts and culture, or between businesses, uh, or in fact, between everybody. I think there's a key message there that uh, whilst we may own some of our data, we may license other data. In fact, it's data that we should all share and be able to have this open, um, open dialogue around in order to really strengthen our collective insight. That was Keith Merrin talking to us about the data journey Tyne and Weir Archives and Museums have been on and how that's been coming out of the pandemic. Now let's head over to Milan to check in with Marco Minicucci, Strategy and Marketing Project Manager at Milano and Partners for a destination-wide perspective on how data can drive decision-making, reinforcing the city's competitive positioning. I'm Marco Minicucci, I'm the Head of Strategy and Marketing at Milan and Partners. We are the destination marketing organization of the city of Milano, and uh, we like to tell the stories of our city, and we are very always curious about what's happening around. So before we jump into data and start to really unpackage what this means and how this is incorporated into your day-to-day -day work, tell us a little bit more about the role of Milano and Partners and what it is that you're mandated to do. Yes, sure. So we are... Uh, as our names recall, uh, our model was very much similar to one of other cities. Uh, definitely the biggest example there is London and Partners. So we don't only work on tourism as a marketing organization, uh, but we work on a destination in terms of uh, tourism uh, events. So let's say the mice industry, uh, human capital, so uh, stu international students uh, and uh, international talent and also foreign direct investments attraction, so FDI attraction. And um, on that specifically, our focus has been recently a lot around innovation also and the organization of the innovation ecosystem here. So very much broad, but always very focused on the brand of the city and the storytelling. 
So you've done a, a, an amazing job at reinforcing and strengthening the brand, the attractiveness, the appeal of Milan as a place to visit, to invest, and to even relocate to. Uh, tell us a little bit about the role that data is playing in your strategy. And if I'm right in understanding, it's really grown over the last few years. Sure. No, I, I think that it's always been, uh, well, uh, one of our focus, uh, me and Luca, our general director, we always thought that it was a cultural first issue that we had to address. Um, I think that, uh, that there is value also in just telling yourself that you always need to look at data. And uh, uh, for also, let's say, just to give a bit of background for myself, I, I my, my previous experience at work was with Bloomberg Associates. So I come from a world which is the one of Michael Bloomberg uh, that uh, used to say that... Uh, <laughs> Uh, only God <laughs> was the one that didn't have to come with the, with data. Uh, so uh, I, I, <laughs> I think that uh, that shaped a bit the way in which I see the decision-making process that we have. Uh, I think that it's always important because uh, especially when we're talking about marketing and especially creative branding, there's always a bit of tendency to try to have a, a very strong opinion, which is eradicated on what we feel and what we believe of our cities. Uh, we are definitely not objective in the way in which we picture our cities because we are very much in love with them. So to me, data and to us, data has always been a matter of uh, listening uh, to what the people were thinking about our city. I think that there's been a lot of development around the type of data used. I think that at the beginning of, uh, let's say, uh, at the beginning of the millennium of the of the um, social media uh, growth, uh, there was a lot of thinking around um, uh, social sentiment, uh, which I think uh, that maybe now has uh, decreased in terms of in terms of interest. Uh, and now there are a lot of interesting and super interesting sources of data that we try to use. Uh, and, and what we're trying to be is also. Uh, um, I, and I for the for all the city and for all the different organizations in the city. It's interesting to see how the way in which we use and think about the opportunities in data uh, also seem to move in waves and trends. And we often talk as if data is this exciting new gold that we're only just discovering. But of course, when you mention social sentiment, this is something which we've been looking at for many years now, um, and perhaps even. Uh, have lowered somewhat our interest more recently as the excitement of being able to understand what people are saying and whether that's positive, negative, what are some of the uh, interesting observations that we can read from there, um, somehow seem to kind of settle down. So tell us a little bit about some of the projects that you've done in the past, but also the projects you're looking to today and in the future, and how you see data evolving in that mix. So we have been working um, at the beginning. We have the first data that we've been looking at were our internal data, which I think that is always useful for DMOs. So we have a strong website that has been growing uh, and uh, our social media channels. So I think that the first data were the one that we own. Uh, and, uh, and we started from there in trying to understand what were the audiences that we were talking to. Uh, after that, um, we try to focus a bit more on the um, data uh, of the city and of how the people were behaving in the city. We had a pilot project in 2019 together with the city of Milan 
we created a dashboard uh, on data that was based on telco and um, um, and um, credit card data. Uh, of course, anonymized, of course, privacy compliant, but they were very good because uh, in an aggregated way, they were providing a, a clear insight on uh, um, what uh, um, the, the way in which people were behaving within the city. Uh, it was um, since then we started to, to think about on different ways in which this could, could be used. Uh, and, um, and I think that uh, there uh, we came about thinking that there was a twofold uh, uh, solution to, to using those type of data in the sense that in one way, they're great for policies in the sense that uh, they're very good at giving you an insight on how the people are, what are the hotspots, of course, you know, for cities that uh, are experiencing over tourism, which fortunately Milan is not one of them. They're very much important in understanding what are the paths and, and thinking, for example, of cities like Venice, for example. Uh, to us, it was more about understanding uh, and sort of the more interesting data to us were the one of the credit cards, because uh, what we wanted to work on was, uh, uh, and this was the political um, policy that uh, we were receiving from uh, the city administration, was to push out of the city center uh, the spending of the series. Um, so in that sense, the credit card data were very much interesting because they were providing to us a clear insight on uh, how much of the spending was concentrating in the city center. Uh, and so that was a very clear way in which we use data because from there on, uh, we switched our uh, branding approach about the city. And uh, we started to talk about, instead of focusing our narrative around uh, uh, the events and everything that was happening in the city, so in a say, time frame uh, and looking at the year, uh, we were focusing more on uh, the neighborhoods as the lenses uh, through which we were telling the story of the city. And in this way, our idea was to push out, let's say a bit out of the center, telling different stories uh, in a similar way in which New York did, let's say in the early 2000s, let's say out of Manhattan uh, to Brooklyn, to, to the Queens, to the Bronx, um, the, the tourism and the influx. And um, so uh, it was... Um, so there, there, there was a project in which uh, we, we used data in a, in a very clear sense. But what we're working now on um, is uh, um, we are trying to use those data as a, a stronger insight on our marketing activity. So what we're trying to, what we're building right now, uh, and it will be up by the end of the year, is a data marketing app um, in which... Uh, we will host uh, uh, at first uh, uh, credit card data uh, with a partner. Um, and um, uh, other than that, we will try to put different sources, both open data and, uh, uh, and non in the future. Um, and yeah, so the, this is the project. This is the, the, the way in which we're doing it. Uh, oh, sorry, the data marketing app will be then connected uh to uh, a platform that will then create marketing campaigns again it's all anonymized so uh due to privacy issues of course it's not possible to directly link people uh to those data but uh, they're very good insight to then use in, uh, ai to drive uh, marketing campaigns so this is a bit the field in which we're working on so your long-term view is to actually better connect all of the data that you have and 
to become better prepared, uh, perhaps even start to make some progress towards experimenting a little bit with AI in your marketing flow and being more predictive, uh, creating more predictive actions, um, more personalized actions and uh, smarter responses to uh, to user uh, behavior. Uh, would that be the right way to summarize it? Yes, and definitely it's always for us, as I was saying before, for, for us, uh, the focus is always to know as much as we can about our audiences. That, that, that's our obsession. We, we want to know the people that are coming here. And to be fairly honest, uh, I, I think that uh, uh, paradoxically, we're, we're still not good enough uh, as DMOs to, to know how the people are behaving actually within our cities. Of course, there are all the right limits that needs to be put in terms of privacy. Uh, but um, when we're talking about aggregated data, I think that it's fundamental because a lot of time we are still assuming the way in which people behave within our cities. And also before, of course, which is even more interesting as a marketer. So you've been able to tap into really valuable data. You mentioned telecoms and credit card data in this aggregated or anonymized uh, format. This obviously provides really rich levels of intelligence, for example, about where visitors from uh, different uh, places of origin might move or how they might behave or how might, how long they might spend, or perhaps even from where to where they are likely to go to. Uh, likewise, with card data, you can see how much they're spending and what kind of um, experiences they're spending their money on. So I guess this is really valuable intelligence. It changes research altogether from being something we collate over time and analyze to something we can see in real time. But licensing data from third parties can also be quite costly. How how do you see that uh, when we when we think about the opportunity to build a marketing hub and to bring in different sets of data, how do you balance all of those really difficult choices about which data to license, how much to invest in that? Uh, do we want to invest in that as a one-off or something that we want to have, say, over a five to 10-year span? This must be really, really difficult choices, uh, not only to make, but also to, to be able to justify so I, I don't think that there is a perfect recipe uh, in the sense that I think that it's very much connected to um, um, say how the ecosystem is shaped in the sense that um, to us, uh, so our, our the way in which we approached it was that uh, th there was a big movement around open data in, uh, uh, in Italy and in Milan uh, in say between the 2010 and 2020, uh, the city of Milan has done a terrific job on that. We have a lot of open data and I think that it's very important. Uh, to us, the approach was that uh, we thought that at the beginning, we thought that one way to look at it was to work on open data and on platforms. So for us to be a platform for different sources of data, we soon realized that uh, uh, without a commercial approach, it was very hard for this type of projects to thrive because uh, uh, platforms tend to become old and without a commercial approach of, of a specific actor, it, the, the risk of uh, having a product that is out of the market in two seconds is very high. And generally speaking, the marketers that are actually interested, they, they like to, they, they tend to buy data. So um, uh, other than the fact that uh, there is a, a right level of uh, open data that needs to be there, our approach was to find a partner 
which we found right now, um, that uh, will commercialize the dashboards and the solution, the marketing solution. Um, we are doing it in collaboration with them, um, um, but uh, the idea is that they, they need to be out on the market to sell this product. And I think that it's only the, it's the only way in which we can actually change the culture also, uh, let's say, in the hospitality sector in terms of using more data to, to drive uh, campaigns. So I, I think that th this was the biggest insight in which we worked on. And we will see now how it works. But uh, to be fairly honest, uh, every time that I saw uh, platforms that had a very, very strong public-driven uh, uh, purpose, uh they tend to get old too soon and and it, and it's it's a huge problem especially when, when you need platform that need to be flexible enough to host new data and with the also with the landscape that is changing so fast in terms of uh, the, the rules and the um and the privacy issues so so partnership is key here both in who you choose to work with to ensure that that platform continues to evolve and adapt and become and maintain its relevance but also in terms of thinking about how everybody can plug into that ecosystem. I, I want to touch a little bit on the, you mentioned earlier, uh, this kind of balance of being objective. Data gives us that, uh, that opportunity to look through the lens totally objectively, see things for what they are, what's happening, um, and in an undisputable way. But of course, as marketeers in developing the, the city, we have to be strategic and we have to then apply subjectivity. When we think about the advent of AI as something which is coming pretty fast um, and perhaps some of those creative decisions even get taken out of our hands if we are to trust AI, how do you see the, uh, the balance of using data and making completely objective decisions purely based on data, but also being able to make uh, our own opinionated decisions uh, based on our experience and based on our subjective viewpoint. It seems like it's getting harder and harder to justify the subjective side of things. So my approach to this is that uh, I consider data to be quantitative and qualitative. And I think that there is qualitative data that uh, only a person that experiences the city can have. Um, so well, from that point of view, I think that uh, the way in which we work generally as marketers is that we uh, we start from uh, a very high level data approach uh, so we're not looking in the you know in, in the finer details uh, but we try to, to find uh, you know a general direction for the year that we want to target uh, and from there uh, we try to build an insight uh, that is rooted on what we feel that is the perception of uh, that we have in the city uh, we're very uh, we're always very um, attentive about uh, uh, the way in which the city itself perceives also the way in which we market it. So uh, as a general approach, uh, what, what we tend to do uh, is always to um, have uh, the campaign. When, when we have a campaign outside, we also run it in the city because we want to make sure that the city knows what we're saying out abroad. So um, it, we start from the data, but then we listen to the city a lot. So the, the, the artificial intelligence to me, potentially, well, that 
other than the fact that if somebody wants to take like a, an AI wants to do the job instead of mine, I, I'm always happy and, and keen to leave it. <laughs> but <laughs> other than that, um, I the way in which we I think that we will use uh, more and more AI is uh, in getting better about predicting the, the fluxes of uh, the influx of people and uh, how much and in um, in getting better in understanding what is the impact that we have within the city. Uh, so I don't see it much on the creative part. Maybe on the creative part, it's more for the editorial purposes. I think that that, that could be a game-changing uh, approach because, uh, you know, a lot of times w we have to spend a lot of money as DMOs in, in creating content that a lot of the time is already out there. So um, with, with all the respect to copyright issues that needs to be paid, uh, I, I think that probably th that would be the biggest way in which I see AI to be used in the future. Great. So I think you've reassured a lot of people who will be listening to this that uh, that that need to balance, as you say, quantitative and qualitative approaches is is still really clear. And I think it can be quite easy to get carried away with a, a solely data driven approach and forget about the value of expertise um, and uh, strategic knowledge and experience uh, that can play a huge role. Indeed, though, there are many opportunities to create efficiencies, to speed up, to improve, to make things go quicker, or faster or better. Um, so I think uh, there's some really interesting discussions to be had a little bit further down the line there. And lastly, you, of course, have this very all-encompassing role with the wider tourism sector and, in fact, the city as a whole. So. Tell us a little bit about where you see the role of data in powering innovation and helping to enable new developments and new solutions to flourish and thrive within both the visitor economy, but also the wider tech and startup sectors in Milan, which are helping to drive the image of the city as well. So we, we have worked, uh, for example, on, on projects that um, were... Um creating platforms for uh, improving, uh, let's say, impact investment within the city. Uh, again, very much focused on open data. So um, I think that our role there was mostly about, uh, you know, to doing a good editorial work, you know, or curating, you know, the data, the information, which I think that is always crucial to, to the work of DMOs. So m many of the times we, we don't need to reinvent the wheels. The information are out there. The content is out there. We just need to um put it all together um but uh, uh another thing that we're doing right now is that we we have recently uh, stepped up let's say our work uh in terms of uh, um, promoting uh, the startup ecosystem in milan uh and uh, we will start this year uh, a mapping of uh, the startup ecosystem um that uh, we hope will drive uh, new investments to uh, to our innovation ecosystem, which is crucial then to uh, attract uh, also talent to the city. So um, this is, a, for example, a very simple way. Again, we're not talking about, uh, you know, a, a lot of time I think that there is this tendency to think that we always need to look at big data as this massive and, uh, you know, um, I, I want to say almost hyper objects, you know, there, there are these hyper objects that nobody really knows what they are and they're huge. Uh, and uh, you don't know how to approach them. Sometimes it's very simple data, just knowing the name of a person and who, what they're doing. 
uh, it's already uh, a fantastic and and very basic need that somebody that is looking from outside uh, with huge informational asymmetry, which we always need to think, sometimes they need the basic information and from their own, they will do it for themselves. But um, I think that this is what we will be mostly focused on in terms of innovation this year. And perhaps as a closing question, Marco, you're uh, remarkably relaxed and uh, in the perspective that you bring when it comes to both strategy and the opportunity to really put data to work within that. Where would you say the biggest challenges have been for you and your team in trying to see results or working generally to incorporate data effectively into your work? Well, you know, I think that the biggest challenge is always um, skills. So um, skills and culture, I think. Um, they're the biggest challenge that I see in the, uh, especially in the t- tourism world. Uh, and and I think that there, there is a lot of work that needs to be done there. Uh, also internally, we, we need to do it more. Uh, but um, I, I think that uh, it, it's, it's a matter of approach and, and how you start your thinking. Um, and, and I have to say that one of the biggest challenges to me is that sometimes I'm very much tempted to, to move up from an, an insight that it's purely coming out of my mind. I'm walking down the street and I'm thinking, wow, I should definitely do a campaign about this. And, and this should definitely be this thing. And, and always need to step, make a step back. And, and sometimes I think that the biggest challenge is there to make sure that, uh, what you were asking before, make sure that the data is not killing your creativity, but that your creativity is not afraid of data in a way. You've been listening to Place-Based Innovation with myself, Nick Hall. The producer of this series is Ana Balaguer-Sanchez, production and editing by Dan Hopkins. The series is part of the Hospitality Innovation Tourism Supply Programme, which supports businesses in Northumberland, Newcastle and North Tyneside to meet challenges through innovation. The programme is funded by North of Tyne Combined Authority and delivered by Newcastle Gateshead Initiative, Food and Drink Northeast and NBSL. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get notified of future episodes. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, why not take a moment to leave a review? Thanks, and we'll see you next time.